Grace and peace be with you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a certain type of archetype that exists whenever it comes to preachers. Everyone has a story about a church that they attended where the pastor pounded on the pulpit and preached hellfire and brimstone. Turn or burn. We normally don't speak glowingly about those experiences. We don't prize them very highly. Many of us have even had issues with the Christian faith because of our encounters and our dealings with these kinds of preachers. They can often be pretty angry and overbearing. And they typically, they typically give short shrift to the gospel of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins through faith in his name. And as a result, many of these preachers reach very few with their message. They normally don't gain any kind of significant following, let alone a public platform. And to be clear, while popularity is never the goal in ministry, it rarely correlates to faithfulness. They rarely go together. The lack of gospel emphasis from these men does justify why they're so obscure, why no one seems to pay attention to them. But what if I told you that there was a man who God called to fit that fiery profile? There was someone who would faithfully preach hellfire and brimstone. One who would preach a very unpopular message during a very pivotal time in history. Not only was this man the unflinching, pulpit-pounding type, but he also seemed to many to be a little bit crazy. He seemed to be a little bit crazy, especially those people who were unfamiliar with the uh, Old Testament prophets and how usually they came across. They, were, they just thought he was crazy. He lived in the wilderness. He wore camel skins. He ate locusts to stay alive. Imagine that. You know, I'm sure that we wouldn't like him very much as a preacher today. We probably wouldn't subscribe to his podcast. We wouldn't go on his YouTube channel to check him out. Nonetheless, his message of the gospel it was just as potent as his message of hellfire and brimstone. Matter of fact, it was even more potent. You could say that his preaching of the gospel was far more effective because of his the severity of the way he preached God's law. And as a result, he went viral. He had exponentially more YouTube hits than, uh, than the preachers all around the area. He was racking up those views and those plays. His name was John the Baptist, and he is the perfect mascot for the Advent season. I heard one scholar call John the Baptist the Advent man. The Advent man. I love that. See, John is a highway builder. He's a construction prophet. He's the Advent man. Advent serves as this bridge season. It calls our attention to the bridges in the biblical narrative. The bridge between the Old Testament and the New. The bridge between God's time and our time. The bridge between now and the final judgment. And John stands on that bridge between the old and the new to announce the coming of the Lord. 
John's words are like a bulldozer to make those high places low and to fill up the valleys to prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus. To prepare for Jesus' incarnation on Christmas, for his coming to the people of Israel at that time, for his coming to us now in word and sacrament, and his coming on the last day. Now in every case of the coming of the Lord Jesus, the vantage point may be different. Our vantage point is different from those in first century Israel. The vantage point is different. We're looking at it differently. But the promise, the promise remains the same. Forgiveness of sins, life and salvation for all who believe. He brings us rescue from sin, death and the devil in his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. He brings it to us now in the means of grace, and he will bring it to us on the last day when he returns. John says many things in this passage, and he pulls many of his ideas from the, the book of Isaiah. But this is what lies at the heart of his message. In verse 6, this is what he says, and this is the heartbeat of the sermon today. He says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. But what does that mean exactly? Is that just some wishful thinking from this camel-vested, long-haired, locust-eating weirdo? Let's examine the passage to see what it says about this salvation. The, evangel the evangelist Luke, he's known for several things, but one of the more prominent things he's known for is his attention to historical details and his commitment to accuracy. He was obviously a very, very gifted scribe and historian in addition to his, his uh, profession as a physician. So he begins this chapter with this list of names in verses 1 and 2. You don't need to know very much about these names, but some of them might be familiar to you. All you need to know is that he is giving us the power brokers. He's giving us the big dogs. He's giving us the ones who are in charge, so to speak. Among the names that you might recognize are Pontius Pilate, Herod Antipas. I have a question for you. Do you tend to associate those names with virtue and righteousness? I hope not. Of course not. These are actually villainous names, right? These names we don't associate with righteousness or with doing what is good. They're, they're villains in, in, the, in the Christian church. Pontius Pilate, we're going to say it here in just a little bit, he shows up in our creed every week, doesn't he? Pontius Pilate is in there. So he's famous, yes, but he's not famous for the right thing. He's famous for having Jesus put to death, right? Likewise, by the end of Luke chapter 3, what happens? Herod has John the Baptist put in prison. And Mark 6, Mark chapter 6 records that he would eventually have him beheaded at the request of his niece, who danced sensuously in front of Herod and his royal guests. I know that's graphic, but that's that's our heritage. Right there. John dies a martyr's death. 
the hands of wicked men. And what did Jesus say about John the Baptist? He said that there never lived one person who was greater. Jesus exalts John the Baptist. Because what, regardless of what's before our noses, regardless of what we see in this life, all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. You see, during John's time, it looked like evil was winning. You know, John was doing what the Lord had called him to do. He was God's faithful prophet. He was preaching this message that many people did not want to hear. And what did it get him? It got him imprisonment, and it got him death. But who goes down in history as the greatest man to ever live, according to Jesus? John the Baptist. And who goes down as a tool of Satan who would, who would ultimately serve in God's greater plan of redemption? Herod, Pontius Pilate. Church, I ask you, who's really in charge here? Who's really in charge? Just as with the death of Jesus, it appeared that evil had won the day. Whenever Jesus was crucified, it looked like evil was winning. The mob got what they wanted. Order was restored to the empire. And you know what? Satan loved every second of it. He loved it. It seemed that God had checked out, that he had left his only son to be victimized in the greatest tragedy in human history. It seemed that God was absent. But who was really in charge? God raised Jesus from the dead and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Despite what is before our noses, all flesh, all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. You know, it's sometimes in our day, it sometimes looks as if the political leaders, the blue, the blue bloods, the big dogs, they are the ones running things and not God. When we look around and all we see is strife, turmoil in the world, nation against nation, political tribe against political tribe, division, hatred, it seems like the devil is winning. It's often what it feels like. Most of what we see in this life actually goes against the message that all, all are going to see the salvation of our God. But church, this is what it means to live by faith. This is what it means to live by faith. Christians cling to the promises of God despite what we see. Despite what is in front of us, we cling to his promises. There is only one who is in charge. It's King Jesus who reigns from the throne of David. And though our vision is limited and we can't see everything that's going on in the world, we only see those who seem like they are in charge. Scripture tells us to look beyond that. It tells us to look to the day when King Jesus will come and return, and he will bring his kingdom reign and rule in its fullness. That's what we look for. Verses 4 through 6 tell us about John's fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. 
So John was actually fulfilling what Isaiah had spoken about 700 years before. John the Baptist was the one that would make straight the paths of Jesus. He would, he would make this highway for him. Through his preaching, through his calling people to repentance, he would, he would bring those proud people down. He would humble the proud, right? And he would raise up those who were downcast and those who were brokenhearted over their sins. All for what? So that Jesus would come and be received. Jesus is the one who comes to us, not the other way around. It's not your advent to him, it's his advent to you. And in the first coming of Jesus, we have already gotten a glimpse of his salvation in his first coming. This is what John was talking about in his day. All flesh are going to see his salvation. Where? In the personal work of Jesus, who's coming right after me. Watch, here it comes. In Scripture today, that's where we behold the personal work of Jesus. That's where we behold his salvation. We see his incarnation and his ministry. We see his death on the cross and his resurrection. We see his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and we see his promise to return. And in all of these things, we see the salvation of our God. His dying and his rising was just the beginning. It was just the beginning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, because of his death and resurrection, there's plenty more where that came from. You and I, church, share in the promise of eternity that is to come when Christ will return in glory to bring heaven to earth and to give eternal life to our mortal bodies. That suit of flesh that you woke up in this morning and it doesn't quite feel right and there's a clicking in your knee and there's a popping in your joints. It seems like we're falling apart day by day. It's because we are. It's the wages of sin. But Christ in his return comes to deal with all of that. He's going to remove all that. He's going to do away with it. He's going to give life to these mortal bodies. You see, the past work of Christ 2,000 years ago is the guarantee. It's the guarantee of his future work when he returns. And here we stand on the bridge between the two. We've got the past behind us. We've got the future ahead of us. But what about now? Is there anything for us right now? I know that happened 2,000 years ago, and I know what's going to happen in the future when he comes, but what about now? Do we see his salvation today? Church, we see his salvation through the ministry of his body, the church, in the Lord's preaching. We see how his salvation in the waters of holy baptism, in the word of absolution, in the Lord's true body and blood that's placed in your mouth. We see, we hear, we taste, touch, and smell his salvation. And these are the ways that he brings his salvation to us here, now to sustain us to the last day. We remain committed to these things, and as we do them, we realize that that salvation of which John spoke of is beginning to show forth in our lives. The salvation that John talked about is breaking forth in our lives. In verse 10, in verse 10, people raise questions. 
John's preaching. They had a natural response. They said, what should we do? If what you're saying is true, what do we need to do? Now, did John tell them that since Jesus was coming, what they needed to do was renounce their worldly possessions and go live in a cave somewhere? That's not what he told them. In light of the coming Christ at that time, he directed them to live out their various callings in holiness, with faith towards God, and with love and service towards their neighbors. John doesn't tell them to abandon their vocations, but he tells them to live honorably within them, to live in a righteous way. He forbids them from abusing their authority that comes with their, their professions. Don't abuse your authority. Live as one of Christ's called workers. And it's the same with us today, church. As we wait for his coming, we are to be a unique community. We are. We're a unique community. We're one that is built upon the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. We are built on repentance and faith in his name for the forgiveness of sins. We live as those who sincerely believe that the salvation of God is at hand. We believe that. We're Advent people. We busy ourselves in serving others in the daily rhythms of life. We serve others in the daily rhythms of life, knowing that by doing so, we are serving our King in whom we trust. So as you make his path straight, as you prepare for his coming, you can serve honorably, diligently, as a soldier, as a worker, as a caregiver, as an employer, as a boss, as a child, as a spouse, a husband, a wife. How long can we make the list? That's where God has placed you. That's what he has for you. I was driving down the, down the street on Knight's Way in front, of the, uh, in front of the high school the other day. And on the corner, I saw someone holding a sign in front of traffic. And the sign said this. It said, Judgment Day is coming. Are you ready? Judgment Day is coming. Are you ready? And you know what? I felt some admiration for this person. I felt admiration for their boldness and their courage to do what they felt was right as a witness. But I couldn't help but think that it was probably pretty ineffective. And it was certainly gospelless. There was no gospel there. That's not what God has given us to do. He has not ordained you to be little John the Baptist. He has placed you where he has placed you. He has given you responsibilities to be his faithful witness in word and in deed in these last days. These are the fruits that follow faith in Christ. These are the fruits. The fruits of repentance that John calls us to bear while we stand on this bridge between the old and the new. Because you are in Christ, you are his new creation. And when he comes, he will deliver on his promise to make you completely new. To make you an inhabitant of his holy city, the new heavens and the new earth. May God grant, may God grant us grace and strength to prepare, to wait faithfully and confidently, bringing forth the fruits of repentance through faith in his name. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.